Good to be together. Welcome to some guests and visitors. My name is Jake. I'm the pastor here. Good to have some of you back after uh, vacation, and welcome to myself back. <laughs> good to have myself back after vacation. Really good to be with you. Um, so we're in this series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew, one of the uh, first four books of the New Testament, one of the four biographies of Jesus, where you can go and learn what Jesus taught and what he uh, did and, and also how we are to follow him. But I want to begin by saying, um, when I was in grade five, I tried out for the local basketball team. I had played hockey up to that point and decided that that winter I was going to try out for basketball. And um, I remember there was a tryout, and I wasn't really that good at basketball, but I tried out. And um, the coach made the list, and he said, now I've got room for one more space, and there's two players that I'm considering for that last space. And lo and behold, yours truly was one of those two players that were being considered. So after the last tryout, we went into the locker room, and we're waiting for the final posting, it's going to be me or some other guy, and some of my little 10-year-old friends are coming up to me and saying, you know, like, do you think you're going to make the team? And I was like, I don't, I don't know, I don't think so. And, and actually, inside, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to make it for two reasons. The first reason is, the, I think the other guy was better. Uh, but the second reason is that during the tryout, I had actually cheated and lied about it, and the coach knew about it. We were doing some drills. We were running suicide drills. Anyone know what that is? Yeah, you have to run a line, then you run back to the start, then you run a further line, and run back to the start, and run a line. And uh, I've always had a problem with speed uh, in my life. I'm just extra safe, right? So I don't want to run too fast. <laughs> and so I was the slowest, and I knew that I was the slowest. So yours truly skipped a couple lines and thought, I'll just catch up to the middle of the pack and kind of just, you know, go unnoticed in the middle of the pack. Somehow I went from dead last to, like, 15th and thought no one would notice. Well, the assistant coach did notice, and and after the drill, he said, hey, I think you skipped some lines. And I was like, no, I don't think so. You know, my my 10-year-old self uh, was just embarrassed about being slow and then embarrassed about cheating and getting caught. And so I thought I would lie. And so I, I, I knew I didn't deserve to make the team, and, and I didn't make it. The other guy was picked, and um, I went back to hockey uh, for my last year of my hockey career. Um, <laughs> we're all here this morning be, not because we've earned our way or deserve to be on the team, Right? We're all part of the family, not because we deserve it. We're all here purely by God's grace and his goodness to us. And we're going to see that so clearly in our story this morning. And I believe that as we read these Gospels, um, there's really a question about, are we going to submit our lives to this Jesus that we read about in these Gospels, that's really what they are written for. If you consider yourself a Christian, it means that you are an apprentice of Jesus. And and that was so beautifully captured in our call to worship. Did you notice that? That we're in the living presence of Christ, that we want to be the presence of Christ in the world. And so if you call yourself a Christian this morning, it means that you are an apprentice of of Jesus, that you've come here to meet Jesus, and then you're planning to leave here, and by his grace, 
imitate Jesus through the week as much as you can or I can. But all of this is by his grace. And, and that's why these stories are written. They are written as witnesses to the Jesus event, witnesses to what Jesus did, but they're also inviting us into the story to become partners, to become participants in the story. I used to think of the Gospels as a training manual, and, and that's good to a degree that, that works as an analogy, as a training manual, but I think there's so much more going on. I mean, if you read a training manual, it's a pretty lame piece of literature, right? It's not really that exciting. I believe when we read these words of the Gospels, and we read them carefully, and we meditate on them, and we pray through them, the living Christ is actually meeting us through these words. There's so much more than just a static thing going on here where we're just reading a manual, but actually Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is meeting us when we work through and carefully handle these words. And so the invitation in this gospel, in this biography of Jesus, is to become an apprentice, to, to follow Jesus, just like students of a master are uh, intended to learn from their master and then eventually have enough skill themselves that the master can step away and the students can take responsibility for the role and do what the master did. Jesus actually wants us to be able to be responsible partners with him in his mission, in his work in the world. That's what it means to be an apprentice. It's what it means to be a disciple. It's what it means to be a follower. And so, you know, sometimes I worry that we come to church or we read the Bible with about as much energy as reading something like Harry Potter, right? I caught myself on sabbatical going to church and I was, you know, my body had as enough about the same amount of energy as when I watch a movie, and, and, you know, Harry Potter isn't trying to convince you that there's a Hogwarts. It's not trying to convince you to start practicing wizardry. And yet, when we read these words of Jesus, he actually expects us to begin to participate in what he is doing in the world. And he wants to participate with us. So what are we being called to practice after this story? Well, before we read the story, let me give it to you up front. We are being called by Jesus to learn, and I would say relearn, to walk in and extend the inextinguishable mercy of Jesus. We're being called through this story we're going to look at to walk in our daily lives and to extend the inexhaustible mercy of of Jesus. And, and that's really what this story's bottom line is. Are we going to be people through whom God's mercy flows through us to other people, regardless of their, who they are, their background, their lifestyle, what they're, how they're living? And that's really what we're going to see in this story this morning. So let me read it for us. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, we are just moving at lightning speed, about four verses a week uh, through Matthew, and, and we will pause to do other things and come back to Matthew, but there's just so much here for us to, to work on. And um, I mean, there's, we just need to learn how to apply this stuff every single week. It's, it's what we're meant to do. So Matthew chapter 9, um, Jesus has just given his great Sermon on the Mount a couple chapters earlier, and now he's beginning to practice the things that he's teaching. Jesus is actually embodying 
the things that he teaches his followers to do. And it says this in verse 9. Uh, Jesus is in his hometown, it seems, or around his hometown back in Capernaum when he first started his ministry and, and where he grew up. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, not the righteous, but sinners. So if we start back up at Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 9, we meet a man named Matthew. And we're in the book of Matthew. Yes, the same Matthew. This is Matthew inserting himself in the story. A little autobiographical moment for this author. And we're told Matthew was a tax collector. Somebody who was a, a Jewish man. And yet he worked with the Romans who were in power at that time. Collecting tax. And, and tax collectors were severely hated by their people. Uh, fellow Jews because they were seen as traitors by their people. They were seen as cheats. By their people. They were seen as liars by their people. And oftentimes, what tax collectors would do is they would collect the tax for Rome and then they would collect a little extra for their own personal benefit. And so Jesus sees this man sitting at a tax booth. He's a tax collector. And the point for us is that Matthew is absolutely hated by his fellow Jews. He is a cheat, he's a liar, he's a traitor to his country in the eyes of many people. And yet, look what it says in verse 9. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. Don't miss that. It's two beautiful words. Jesus saw this guy who everyone else looked over, who everyone else hated, who everyone else wanted to avoid. Jesus sees this man, Matthew, with all of his thievery, with all of his social injustice. Jesus sees this man and he speaks to him. It's beautiful. Jesus saw And Jesus calls this man the most unlikely man ever to the most precarious and profound call, follow me. It's a dangerous call, and it's a profound call in those two words. Just simply, follow me. Be an apprentice of me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Become an apprentice of of me, And so he calls this man to follow him. And this is what our call is today. When you read this, you should hear Jesus calling you. Follow me. Come learn from me. Come learn how to do what I do. And, and this is the invitation for all of us to learn how to commune with the Father. Like Jesus communed with the Father. How to listen to the Holy Spirit in 2019 Canada. It's a hard thing. But how do we daily listen to the Holy Spirit? How do we see the world through the eyes of the Father? I talked about that a little bit last week. 
how we often judge the world based on our circumstance, our, our experience. And yet Jesus is always inviting us to see the world through his eyes, a world that God is constantly at work in. How do we walk in the power of God's presence in our everyday lives? These are the things Jesus is calling us to with those two words, follow me. Learn how to walk by the Spirit. Learn how to commune with the Father. Learn how to walk in the power and presence of God. And these are the things that Jesus will go on to train his disciples how to do. And so he invites Matthew, follow me. Follow me. That's what we want to be. We want to be followers. And it says, Matthew got up and followed him. Maybe some of your translations, it says, Matthew arose. But this is more than Matthew just physically standing up. This is actually resurrection language. Those words got up or those words arose, depending on your translation, are are words in the Greek that, that are similar to the words that are used when Jesus rises from the dead. Matthew's doing so much more than just standing up from a tax booth. He's rising from the dead. He's being raised from the dead. He's being resurrected. And and at this point, Jesus was a pretty well-known rabbi. And he probably recognized, Matthew probably recognized Jesus as Jesus was walking by. And Jesus, out of all the people, Jesus sees him. And when Jesus invites Matthew, come and follow me, Matthew knows No matter how much money he's got stored up, it's all rubbish compared to this offer of following Jesus. And Matthew, in this moment, leaving his tax booth behind, getting up, he's raised to new life. He's raised to new life. It doesn't matter how much money he has. Do you know that about Jesus? That it doesn't matter how comfortable our lives get. It doesn't matter how comfortable our homes get, how big our TVs get, how uh, nice our RSPs get, how manicured our lawns or our bodies or our animals get. I gave my dog a haircut yesterday, (laughs) so this is a timely metaphor. It doesn't matter how manicured everything gets, how comfortable we get. Like We are the most comfortable people on the planet. And yet, without Jesus, if we don't get raised to new life through Jesus, we are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked without Jesus. Matthew sees this, not because he earned it, purely because of God's grace, and I hope we will see it. I hope we will see it, not only one time, but see it every day, that our life doesn't rest on our physical things. It rests on are walking with Jesus day by day, following him day by day. So that's verse 9. And then Jesus goes on to a, to a, a house for dinner. And in uh, Luke, it, it tells us, I, think it, I believe it's Luke, it tells us this is actually Matthew's house that Jesus goes to for dinner in verse 10, that Matthew has a party and he invites other tax collectors and sinners. And so it says in verse 10, Jesus sits at dinner in the house. He's reclining and many tax collectors and sinners are coming around sitting with Jesus and Jesus' disciples. And so, you know, Matthew is not just an exception that Jesus makes because he's having a particularly good day. 
This is who Jesus is. Now he's inviting all kinds of sketchy people around him, tax collectors and sinners. And this word sinner was a a term, it was sort of a derogatory term given by Jews to other Jews who would not or could not keep ritual purity. They had all of these laws around what it meant to be ritually pure. And a lot of this came out of the Old Testament. But as history went on, these laws were used in more and more abusive ways. And so they would call people, you know, you're just a sinner. You're just kind of a wretched sinner. It was also used of anyone who wasn't a Jew by birth. So it means a Gentile, like most of us in this room who are not Jews. Uh, Nationally, we would be considered Gentiles. And so the Jews called anyone who was not a Jew uh, just a sinner. You're just a sinner, unworthy of God. And these are the people that are around Jesus, and he's showing dramatic grace to them. And we meet for the first time in Matthew the Pharisees. Ah, the Pharisees. Let's say that. Ah, the Pharisees. Dun, dun, dun. It's like a dark shadow over the text. We meet them for the first time, and they are not impressed. They are here to make sure that there is order, and they are making sure people are doing the right things. And they had set out all kinds of customs, and they're not impressed that Jesus is hanging out with these despised tax collectors and sinners. Let me just give you a little blurb about the Pharisees. Uh, For those of you who this is a new word, they were a religious sect, and I've got a quote on the screen They were an unofficial yet powerful Jewish pressure group in Jesus' time. They they weren't uh, they didn't have any government power, and yet they were always very powerful in social uh, circles, and they were a pressure group, putting pressure on Jews. They were largely lay-led, though they included some priests who would have been more official. Their aim was to purify Israel through intensified observance of the Jewish law called the Torah. So they wanted people to be intensely observing the Old Testament law, and they did this by developing their own traditions about the precise meaning and application of Scripture. Um, sorry, I lost my uh, Their own patterns of prayer and, their, and other devotion. And so they, had not, they were not only trying to follow the written law that we have in our Old Testament, they were adding all kinds of other verbal laws on top of this. If, if the Sabbath says don't do work on the... Sorry, if the law says don't do work on the Sabbath, that's kind of vague. What is work? Like carrying one piece of firewood, two pieces of firewood, ten pieces of firewood? The Pharisees had this figured out about what to do, what not to do. And they tried to enforce this on other people. So even though they weren't legal experts... Um, most Pharisees, or sorry, not all legal experts were Pharisees. Most Pharisees were legal experts. They knew their Old Testament very well, and they added on top of it, as if you know, 613 laws wasn't enough for someone to try and follow. And this is the people who are having a problem with Jesus. And we're going to encounter, Jesus is going to encounter the Pharisees again and again. Um, In the Gospels, there's all kinds of characters popping up. Just like today, you have all kinds of different denominations or all kinds of different people with different lifestyles. It's the same in Jesus' day. So we've got, you know, tax collectors and sinners and Jesus' disciples that are a ragtag bunch. And then you've got these Pharisees. And then Jesus is going to get in trouble with the high priest later and the scribes. And then you've got Sadducees. 
Sadducees coming. There's all of these different people groups all around Jesus popping up, and they all have problems with Jesus. So to sum up, the Pharisees took their beliefs very, very seriously. But they used their beliefs to exclude others. They, they often used their beliefs and enforced their beliefs for their own power and their own prestige. Their beliefs actually excluded them from others. Now, before we judge, let's just be honest. We all have opinions around who Jesus can actually transform and who he can't, right? Like, we shouldn't, but in our humanness, we often do if we're not being careful. Like, let's say you show up to church one day during the week, and, you know, I've got Trump in my office, and we're laughing and slapping backs and having a great old time. You're probably, some of you, depending on your views, are going to wonder, you know, why does Jake seem to be chumming it up with Trump? Or I show up and I've got Trudeau in my office. Depending on your views, and, and we're, you know, laughing, having a good time, slapping backs, although I doubt Trudeau slaps backs. Some of you, depending on your views, are going to say, you know, why does Jake have Trudeau in his office? Or imagine you're walking downtown and you see Kale and I, it's late at night, and we're talking to some prostitutes. You, you might wonder, why are Jake and Kayla talking to prostitutes? Or, or imagine you're walking down the streets late at night, there's a very loud party going on, and out walk Kayla and I from this party. You, you might wonder, what is my pastor doing at this raging party? Or imagine if someone that you know and you care about has dinner with a member of some terrorist organization, Someone like ISIS or LRA or, or, or KKK. We all have these tension points about who Jesus can actually work on and who he can't work on. And, and my point is that this is not far off from how Jews and the Pharisees would have looked at Matthew and these tax collectors and these other quote-unquote sinners that they, they would have looked at Jesus as hanging out with a terrorist or someone who is at least participating in injustice and terrorism in some form. Somebody who was collecting money to fund terrorism. They, they would have looked at Matthew as this incredibly immoral person and all of these tax collectors. And Jesus would have been seen as somehow approving of this. Actually, Sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners was in that culture actually offering acceptance and welcome and fellowship to these people. Who you ate with communicated an acceptance of their lifestyle, an acceptance of their behavior to an extent, uh, according to most people in that culture. And yet Jesus is very careful here. Even though most people thought who you ate with communicated acceptance and fellowship, certainly Jesus is welcoming them. And yet Jesus sees things differently. The the Pharisees asked this question, how can your teacher eat with these kinds of people? And look, Jesus recognizes that they're not healthy people. 
Jesus is, is eating with them, recognizing that these are people who need help, who need healing, who need a physician. I, I worry that sometimes these stories of Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors get thrown away or get thrown around to sort of prove, like, look at Jesus. He was just sort of a, a half-hearted guru who just ate with anybody and he didn't care about what you did. And sometimes that's how these stories get thrown around. And yet for Jesus, he's eating with them, he's embracing them, but he's doing this because he wants to offer them healing in their lives. He's not this half-hearted guru. So I've got on the screen, it's so true that Jesus loves everyone where they are. He invites us to be where we are, to come to him, but it's so untrue that Jesus is fine leaving people where they are. Jesus doesn't meet, you know, 10-year-old basketball cheating Jake and say, like, keep cheating. That's a great way to go through life. Jesus had, has, it's an ongoing process, a lot of work to do in Jake. And Jesus meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. Jesus doesn't say to these Pharisees, look, these people are just fine. He says they're sick. They need healing. He says sin is a sickness. We are all sick. We all need this healing. He says they need a physician. They might even need something serious like a heart transplant. They might even need surgery. Jesus recognizes their Sickness and their sin, he's not excusing it, but he is refusing to quarantine himself off from people. And and thank God he does, because we would all be hopeless, right? Thank God he refuses to quarantine himself off. Jesus offers hospitality and inclusion precisely because he sees us sinners as ill and in need of transformation. It's why he offers us hospitality and welcome, not because he sees us fine just the way we are. And and there's all kinds of great questions that don't get asked in this text, but are there. Like, like, why did these people want to be around Jesus? What does that say about Jesus, that these kinds of characters were drawn to him, that they wanted to come and they were comfortable eating with him? I think it says some amazing things about Jesus but sadly, church, our, our history as Christians has all kinds of moments of severe judgmentalism in it. And, and even today, rightly or wrongly, uh, we have a, a really bad reputation for judging who belongs in the community and who doesn't. I think this story challenges that. The church throughout history in in various ways has often missed this very plain teaching of Jesus that every person, regardless of their background, their position in life, their job, their race, their sex, their orientation, their lifestyle, every person is welcome to have equal access to Jesus. Every person is welcome to meet, to encounter Jesus, and to decide what they want to do with this Jesus, the church should be the most radically inclusive community, opening its heart 
to anyone who wants to hear about Jesus. And I know that word inclusive is a bit of a loaded term right now, but what I mean by that is anybody who wants to meet Jesus, regardless, should have the opportunity to meet Jesus. Should be welcomed to meet Jesus. I mean, to think about uh, people who who call themselves Christians, who through history have lived in the most, you know, quote-unquote Christian parts of the world, and every Sunday they're going and worshiping Jesus, and then they go home during the week and they're declaring, you know, non-white races need to be segregated. That's so baffling. And it's so disgusting and it's so disturbing, but it makes me very concerned about my own self-deception. We need to read these texts humbly. And rather than just say, you know, how could those fools do that? Realize that we all read the Bible with certain lenses, certain goggles. And if we're not reading the Bible carefully and humbly and prayerfully, I mean, this teaching of Jesus doesn't get much clearer than this. Jesus welcomes the most hated people. And yet so many Christians through history have gone on hating people. So we have to be humble that we don't allow our culture or allow our family um, opinions to dictate how we understand the love of Jesus. I grew up in a, a great home. My mom's here, so I have to say that. Um, really great home. You know, I grew up in some pretty good churches uh, for, the, for the most part. I grew up Baptist, which means I'm right about everything, right? I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Um, I grew up in some good churches, but... To be honest with you, like, I don't trust, uh, to a degree, my heritage. And it's not because my mom's not awesome and my dad's not awesome and the pastors I had aren't awesome, but it's because we all read the Bible in a certain culture and with certain lenses. And, and I can't say for sure that, you know, if I had been raised in the 60s in the Deep South and fed that doctrine and those lies, that I wouldn't be a racist person. And so my point is that even though I have a great heritage, you know, I'm thankful that I grew up, I don't just trust my heritage. I'm not just coasting through my adulthood life, you know, on my heritage. I'm constantly reading these texts and rereading these texts. And my mom and I actually have conversations like, Mom, I think you got this wrong, and I think you led me astray, and you need to repent and confess your sins. (laughs) And she does, thankfully. And then she cooks me supper. It's great. <laughs> but we need to be honest and open before these texts. There, there's no room for racism or homophobia or Islamophobia or judging people or not, or sorry, not welcoming people to Christ because of their social status or whatever. It, it's been acceptable and trendy in churches for far too long to hold up certain sins and to crucify certain people, people who are divorced or people who are gay or people who are sexually promiscuous or people who are alcoholics or people who are cheaters and to crucify them while abysmally overlooking greed, gluttony, selfishness, lust, and labeling those things, you know, a a little struggle. I'm not saying there's no sexual ethics. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that we aren't meant to have discernment. What I'm saying is that anybody who wants to meet Jesus from whatever background is welcome to meet Jesus. And Jesus will do the work he needs to do in all of us. He's doing work in me every single day. 
I'm saying any attitude that has us excluding ourselves from others, any attitude that has us um, participating in exclusion of others is unacceptable for people of Jesus. That's the point of this story. Jesus is hanging out with the worst of society, his society, sorry, in their eyes. And so we've got to repent of this and we've got to be aware of our own blind spots, our own um, ability to be misled based on maybe a church we were raised in or a family we were raised in or the way that we have our own biases. And we've got to constantly be submitting these things to Jesus to read the text afresh. Every generation has to wrestle with these texts in fresh ways. And we're going to see that next week. We're not intended to be just curators of the past. God is doing a new work and we are to wrestle with these things freshly. So Jesus says, it's, it's not those who are well who are in need of a physician, but those who are sick. These sinners I'm around, I'm embracing them. I'm, I'm, I'm dining with them precisely because I see their desperate illness and I want to heal them. And Jesus says in verse 13, part one, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus is quoting the Old Testament because these Pharisees, Here's another warning for us. These Pharisees were convinced that the sinners and the Romans and the Gentiles and the Jews not following the law, the Pharisees were convinced those people were the problem. The Pharisees missed the deep sickness in their own hearts. And the Pharisees thought if only people will follow the law more closely if only people will be better at following the law, then we can fix this problem. If only we can force stricter obedience on these people, we can fix this problem. And yet the Pharisees missed the deep sickness in their own hearts. And Jesus, quoting a passage from Hosea chapter 6, says, God's desire is not for rituals and sacrifice. God's desire is to be merciful. In, in Hosea 6, it says, God's desire is that you be faithful in love, that you have covenant faithfulness. It's this idea of loving God and loving others. That's God's desire. More than rituals and sacrifice or strict obedience, God wants us to be people who love Him, who worship Him, and who love others. And the Pharisees were so fixated on what people weren't doing, and yet Jesus, His mission all along, was people, was, was healing people. And so Jesus says, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I've come to call, Jesus says. You know what that word means? It means to invite. I've come to invite. It's our slogan here at Colby Community Church, inviting all to new life in Jesus that I've come to invite anyone who will listen, anyone who wants to heed my call, who wants to heed my warnings. I've come to call, I've come to invite anyone out of their sickness, out of their sin, out of their brokenness, to find healing and salvation. Jesus has come to call sinners. In other words, he's come to call All of us, every one of us 
are sinners. And, and what's he calling us to? If he says, I've come to call sinners, what's he calling us to? He's calling us, like he called Matthew, to recognize our poverty without him. Our, our spiritual bankruptcy, our disease, our sickness without him. He's calling us to recognize that he's the only one who can raise us to new life. And he's inviting us, like Matthew stood up from his tax booth, to, to stand up from our sin and sickness and spiritual bankruptcy, to find new life, to find resurrection in Jesus. He, he's inviting us to say, we can't do this on our own. He's inviting us to see that we are all sinners and we remain in sin and sickness if we don't respond to this invitation to, to follow Jesus. That's what he's inviting sinners to do. I've come to call sinners, he says. And that, that invitation, it's always there. I would say even as a Christian, that invitation is there daily to get up again, to follow him, to get up again, to follow him, to get up again, to follow him. It's not something you do one time only. It's a constant getting up and following Jesus. And Jesus is our healer. He is the one who has the power over us and sin and death and disease precisely because he took sin and sickness on himself on the cross. It's what he will go on to do later in the story. Jesus lets sin and disease and sickness and evil do its absolute worst to him on the cross. And he takes all of these things in his body on the cross. It says in Isaiah 53, he took up our infirmities. This is one of the things Jesus is doing on the cross. He's the great physician and the way that he heals is through taking our sickness and sin on himself. Taking it into his body and dying on the cross for us. Letting this sickness and disease do its very worst to him. And that would be a horrible story if it ended there. But we believe Jesus rose again from the dead. That he rose again. And in rising from the dead, what Jesus is showing is that he is the one who has the power over sin. He's the one who has the power over sickness and disease. He is the one who has all authority. And yet he uses this authority to heal, to set free. He uses this power not to exclude himself, but to heal us and set us free. So I hope you'll, you'll hear this invitation from Jesus, maybe for the first time, or maybe you've been walking for, with Jesus for a long time. He's inviting us to, to stand. He's inviting us to follow him every day, every step of our lives. And, and I want to invite you, if this is the first time you've heard this, this might be a, a prayer that would help you to, to verbalize. I've, I've got it on the screen, but I would invite you to, 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 to pray something like this. Jesus, you are healer. I confess you are God, you are Savior, I am not, and I need you. You are the only one that can save me from the disease of sin deep in my entire being. I want to follow you. I want to begin a journey of being renewed and transformed by you.
it, it's not those exact words that are a formula to, to make you right with God, but it's, it's that posture of a heart that says, God, I need you. You have what I can never get for myself. Help me to f- follow you. And if you've prayed that or believed that for the first time, talk to me or someone else after. That's an amazing prayer to see for the first time, to pray for the first time. For the rest of us, let me remind us, for for those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, what are we being called to in this story? I said it at the beginning, we're being called by Jesus to learn to walk in and extend the inexhaustible mercy of Jesus. It's what this whole story is about. His mercy is inexhaustible. It has no limits. It, it, it never stops. It keeps going. And we are called to walk in that. You know, the, the Bible could simply be a list of rules like, you know, rule number one, be merciful. But it would leave us wondering, what, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? The Bible gives us stories to show us what it looks like. It looks like when you see someone who's the most hated person in the world... Have them over for dinner. That's what it looks like to be merciful like Jesus is merciful. When you see someone most despised, have them over. Go out for them for dinner. That's the kind of mercy Jesus has. And let me just say this last thing. I've got a quote from an author, Deb Hirsch. She says, Who you have around your table says a lot about the Jesus you serve. We are meant to be open invitation to anyone who wants to meet Jesus. It's so countercultural to our culture. It's so countercultural to so much Christianity through history. But this is who we are meant to be. People with open arms to whoever wants to meet and encounter Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this inexhaustible mercy is so much richer than my simple words can ever express. It is so much richer than any story we see around us. It is so much wider, so much deeper, so much greater, Lord. So I pray that you would help us walk in this mercy to know that daily we are surrounded by this mercy. Not a mercy that says you're fine the way you are, just keep being the way you are. It's it's a mercy that is constantly inviting us to take a step forward. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be people who extend this mercy outward to others. I pray that we would walk in this mercy and we would allow this mercy to flow through us to be extended out to others, God. Lord, I repent for the ways that I have excluded others, judged others. And Lord, I pray that you would help us truly walk in this vision for our church to be a church that invites all to new life in Jesus. So thank you for your mercy. Thank you that while we were sinners, while we were liars and cheaters, while we were broken people, greedy, selfish, lustful, angry, whatever it is, God, you loved us, you died for us, you invited us to new life. Thank you that you saw us like you saw Matthew. You saw us in our own tax booths. 
and you welcomed us to new life. Help us walk in new life. And Lord, may we be doers of your word. Help us to not just be hearers of your word, but practitioners, apprentices of Jesus as we walk together. All this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. Amen.